The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, summertime and the living is easy and hot, often enough, and getting hotter. Ever since Jaws came roaring onto the screen in 1975, the summer blockbuster has been a staple of the entertainment calendar. But people were going to the movies in the summer long before that. In fact, modern-day air conditioning was invented by a man named Willis Carrier, who was tasked with coming up with something to help uh, photographic paper, which expanded and shrank and was generally destroyed by humidity, much as I was for most of the 1970s, incidentally, although my father did his best with a box fan in our living room. Carrier came up with the invention that saved photographic paper in the summer, and he saw another use as well. Movie houses, which in the 1920s saw their attendance fall off a cliff for three months every summer. He talked to Paramount Pictures, who were then building a new facility in Times Square called the Rivoli Theater. And he said, hey, why not install this new system of mine and keep people cool? It worked like gangbusters. It still works like gangbusters for everything from gangster flicks to ghostbusters. Hey, who writes this stuff? (laughs) Do I need to purge the interns again? (laughs) Ah, well, I'm too hot to take any strong actions. In any event, the summer has long been a place to seek refuge in the movie house where they keep the temperatures arctic. It's an experience that's part of childhood. It was part of my childhood, and it's been a part of my kids' childhood, too. Summer and the movies. So in honor of the summertime and the movies and the uh, collaboration between the two, we are going to do a little best oven here. Not best oven. That's the kind of heat we don't want. Okay, interns, <laughs> script writing interns, you are all on notice. HOL goes to the movies today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Hollywood in the movies and summer. It's a match made in heaven or hell or wherever they make delicious, irresistible matches. Depends on your view of the movies, I suppose. For me, they are heaven, although I am a little tired of comic book movies. I've been on an Elaine May kick lately, which took me into the world of Cassavetes and the world of Clute. And Belle de Jour, good lord, what a movie that is. And you can see that in this frame of mind, Hollywood is not quite on my mind. Au contraire, mes amis. You might think that, but you'd be wrong. One of my very first memories of the movies, apart from all the movies I actually went to at a young age, like the Herbie movies and the Apple Dumpling Gang and... Jodie Foster movies. Did anyone but anyone besides me know Jodie Foster as a child actress before Taxi Driver? My sister and I were furious that we couldn't go see Taxi Driver. But it's a Jodie Foster movie. We said age, I don't know, six, five and seven, maybe five around there. Jodie Foster's our favorite. And my mother, who was luckily on top of things, I can't imagine what would have happened if we'd accidentally seen that movie. Freaked me out. Freaked me out uh, when I was 22. 
traveling through India where I happened to catch it, or should I say, it ran over me. Anyway, good thing my mother did not succumb to our cries and our pleas and take us to see Jodie Foster in the Scorsese classic. There are Freaky Fridays, and then there are Freaky Fridays, if you know what I mean. So, in those days of me watching all those movies, my dad was a huge movie guy, and he would take us all the time. And he would sit there with us and laugh as loud as anyone at Don Knotts and Tim Conway and everything else on the screen. And we went to Star Wars and E.T. That was my era, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I can remember when we would go to the mall, I would stand staring at the movie posters. They were so exciting and inviting. Glimpses of a story right there on the screen. So glamorous. And so pregnant with possibility. One of them I remember vividly was of Warren Beatty. The movie was Heaven Can Wait. And it's one of those I chalked up to, ah, for the grown-ups. I don't get to see that one. And guess what, people? I'm just catching up with it now. They're all streaming. Movies like 10 and Heaven Can Wait 10 was not so good. Heaven Can Wait was quite good. I watched it on a streaming service recently. Elaine May, one of my heroes, wrote the thing, along with Buck Henry. It's that kind of a movie, and it made me terribly nostalgic for that era. An era when I was not an adult, but when adults ruled at the movie theater. Not young kids, young men. It wasn't just cartoons and comic books. It was I was watching, recently I saw Five Easy Pieces and The Last Detail and Clute, that era when movie going was a thing. You didn't just watch them at home or on one's phone. Movies were different from TV back then, and it wasn't just a uh, the sort of thing where you'd go to the movie theater because there was a big special effects extravaganza or an animated film. You didn't need that to have it be economically viable. You could go watch movies about people, dramas in the theater with a hundred other people, maybe a few hundred, if it had a good star and a good plot, or maybe just 10 or 20 other people if it was artistic or had subtitles. I love that era. I love movies. I did then and still do today. So Along the way, over the years, we have taken a look at some films here on the History of Literature podcast. We're going to take three excerpts from past episodes selected by one of our interns who will not be fired. He's doing an amazing job, and we are happy to have him on board. Lucky to have him. I hope he stays. But he's also bound for big things, so who knows? In any case, we've got three clips for you. First up, for, first up our old friend Brian Price, our screenwriting expert who wrote a book all about Aristotle and the lessons that an aspiring screenwriter can take from Aristotle's poetics. You know that the poetics were hugely important to a certain William Shakespeare who followed the advice in Aristotle's book, sometimes to the letter, sometimes even to his detriment. Brian minds the same work for lessons in how to make a movie work the elements of telling a good story, the emotions we feel when we hear good stories, and the joy of learning through the experience of feeling. And we will include a bit about character and conflict in movies like Casablanca and The Godfather. Were those summer movies, by the way? Do you think of them as summer movies? 
They were not, really. The Godfather was released in March, although it was still playing in the summer, of course. Casablanca was released in January. I'm not sure why I felt that. Obviously, it was many years before I was born, but I, I did sort of associate it with a winter release. I'm not sure why. Is it a wintry film somehow? It's set in Morocco, but it's got all those interiors and, of course, that famous fog. So we'll follow our snippet with our old friend Brian, with our new friend, Meg Tilly, who went from being a queen of Hollywood, a queen in the sense of being an award-winning and in-demand actress, appearing in films like Agnes of God and The Big Chill, who parlayed her expertise in stories and storytelling and character and empathy, all skills that help a professional actor succeed, of course, parlayed those skills into a highly successful second career as a novelist. Guess what, people? Those same acting traits are also good traits for a writer of fiction. As it turns out, she'll tell us about that and about what it's like to live in Hollywood, finding oneself in Hollywood in both senses of that phrase. And finally, here's one for sheer pleasure. Our old friend Mike, oldest of old friends, and one of our very first guests here on the history of literature, certainly our most often repeated guest, and the only one we've ever turned the keys over to for a solo episode, his three-part run on David Foster Wallace. Thank goodness he took that one off my hands. We have agreed to disagree on that topic, but we usually do agree for the most part. Mike's the president of the Literature Supporters Club and a hero of literary Twitter, for those of you keeping up with the intros, we usually agree for the most part on things, and one of them is our love for the films of Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense, and one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. Hitchcock dominated the 20th century from the 1930s into the 1970s with some absolute classics of suspense. Classy suspense movies. That was Hitch. Mike and I did a draft of our top 10 movies in our final snippet today. We will look at our number one choices. So there we go. Brian Price, Meg Tilly, and Mike Palindrome after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus 
in Apple Podcasts. Price in this excerpt, I start by talking about Aristotle and how he approached the nature of storytelling in his famous work, The Poetics. And for people who maybe aren't familiar with it or maybe even aren't familiar with Aristotle, I mean, he was such a clear-eyed observer. And as I understand it, he basically just watched all of the tragedies and went to, you know, he was a, a theater goer like, like his peers. And he essentially just said, well, I'm going to write down what works and what doesn't, and I'll offer some ideas for why it works. And he he wasn't starting, uh, as Plato might have, from a, a theoretical idea of a perfect play, but he was actually just observing the plays that worked and said, well, here's what they do, and here's here's the ones I've seen that aren't successful, and here's where I think those went wrong. And he basically just breaks everything down into simple elements. Exactly. He, he's looking for observable patterns, just like you say. He's mm. looking at the, the epic poems and the tragedies and the comedies, although his work on comedy we, we, it doesn't exist anymore, so yeah. we have to kind of extrapolate what he might have written about it. But yeah, he's looking, what are what are those common elements that, that show up over and over again in the stories that are successful, in the stories that survive, that are absent in those that don't? And so in, in a way, you can look at, at the way he deconstructs tragedy as really the first, um, the first manual in how to write a successful story. Yeah. So you break things down into what you call AGPs. So what are those? Well, in, in trying to find contemporary relevance to a lot of the things that he observed, I pull out some of, of what I call Aristotle's guiding precepts. Mm-hmm. And they are the, 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 the observations that he made about tragedy that are relevant to any story, to any dramatic narrative that you're telling, whether it's a joke or a commercial or a short story or a novel, or in, in the case of the book, specifically screenwriting. But the things that he observed that go into making a good story, those AGPs, those guiding precepts, are relevant to Shakespeare, like you said. They're relevant to Death of a Salesman. They're relevant to Star Wars and Black Panther because what Aristotle observes ultimately is that there's a right way to tell a story. Mm. There's something built into our DNA that not only requires us as a species to tell each other stories, but to tell them in a very particular way. And as writers, we need to know what that is. And if we divert from it to know that there are going to be consequences and to be aware of those consequences. Right. Well, I'm glad uh, you explained this and you started to bridge something that I was going to ask. And I I want to ask you for some specific examples of AGPs. But first, I want to just mention this bridging that I'm talking about. So famously, we don't have Aristotle's book on comedies. And so one of the things I was wondering about when I started thinking through your project is could it only apply to tragedies? Would it, you know, and, and we don't have many movies that are tragedies. We have so many with, you know, the happy endings. And so, or, or we have just different genres. We have romantic comedies or action movies. And so I was wondering if uh, your use of Aristotle would be limited to a certain, a very certain type of drama. 
Uh, but it sounds like you're able to apply it to pretty much any uh, script that a screenwriter might be working on. Yeah, that's kind of the, the, the goal of the book is to apply these Aristotelian principles to any screenplay, any genre, comedy, drama, horror, sci-fi. And again, they're still relevant to a play, like I said, in a novel, in a short story. The, the things that he's observing are really about the experience of, of hearing a good story well told. Mm. So the emotion ultimately that's elicited by that story is really what determines the kind of, of, of narrative that it is. So if it's something that, that makes us weep, we may term it a tragedy. If it's something that makes us laugh, we're going to say that it's a comedy. If it's something that makes us scream, we say that it's horror. But the point that he makes is the fundamental function, the, the, the fundamental element that exists in every story is catharsis, is that it provides an emotional experience. Mm. And it doesn't matter ultimately what that emotional experience is. It has to provide it in order to be successful. Mm. And so you mentioned, along with catharsis, mimesis. So how do those two work together? Now, that's, that's really the fundamental question of, of, I don't want to say the argument that he makes, but, but his ultimate observation is not just what makes a good story, but he's trying to answer the question, why do we tell stories? Right. So, so he, he starts by, by saying that we've been telling stories to each other since we arrived on this planet, since we sat around the campfire telling the, the tale of that morning's great saber-toothed tiger hunt. And that these stories exist in every culture, in, in every part of the world, in every part of history. It's, it's one of the things that connects us all as human beings and that separates us from every other animal on the planet, that we tell stories. So mm. the question is, why? Is it just an entertainment? Is it just an opportunity to take a break from our lives for, for a few hours? Or is there something more profound at work? And and so he he begins the investigation by identifying these two elements that exist in every successful story, like you said, catharsis and mimesis. And mimesis uh, is something that he describes in a lot more detail than he does catharsis. So we can talk about that for a moment. It's usually translated as um, imitation or representation. And the idea is that humans alone on this planet are, are blessed with this joy in learning. Mm. that we have questions. We look at the sky. We wonder, why are we here? What is our place in the universe? What's the meaning of life? And we derive pleasure from seeking answers. And Aristotle makes the point that the way that we learn is through representation, mm. through seeing ourselves and our world reflected back to us. So that would be one of the, the most important elements of a good story is that you've got to show the audience something of their world and their lives so that they can recognize their experiences up on that screen or up on that stage. Yeah. But at the same time, and now we'll jump ahead a few thousand years, uh, you know, one of the smartest things that a, a screenwriting professor ever said to me was, nobody goes to the movies to learn something. We go to the movies to feel something. Yeah. So that's where catharsis comes in. We go to the movies, we go to a play, we read a book, fiction, to have an emotional experience, to laugh, to cry, to scream. And so when you put those two elements together, what you get is that a good story 
is providing the joy of learning through the experience of feeling. Mm. And that's ultimately what the, the job of a screenwriter is. Yeah. You know, I have heard so many interviews with, um, uh, I guess, like the Seth Rogans of the world, and they'll say that that's what Judd Apatow taught them, or that's what his influence was on them, you know, that, that they just had a, right. they had, you know, a hundred pages of jokes and everything was really funny, but then it was in shaping the screenplay. It was, well, where's the emotion? What are the stakes? Where's, you know, what is this, what is this driving at? It seems like it's, it's the hardest part. Maybe it's, it's sort of the, the thing that a screenwriter has to unlock in order to have a successful screenplay. Very true. Ah, so I heard a couple of examples recently. Let me bounce these off you and see what you think. I don't know if you read this. There was an article recently, or a, maybe it was a blog post or something, but it was by uh, a screenwriter who had worked for uh, both Marvel and DC superhero movies. And mm. he developed this theory, and he said, here's why Marvel here's why the Marvel ones are working and DC is less successful. And everybody poked holes in that, of course. But, you know, there's exceptions to those rules and stuff. But what he said struck me as really interesting, and I think it gets at what you're talking about with Mimesis. He said that DC movies have focused on the powers and Marvel has focused on the people. And, you know, a great example might be Superman, who basically... He's very hard to identify with, and he comes on the screen fully formed. You know, he's already already in full command of all of his powers. And Marvel might have uh, Peter Parker, who we all can right. put ourselves in those shoes, or the Hulk, who's wrestling with his anger, or it gives us more of an insight into something we might be able to identify with. And uh, the reason why I kind of bring that example up is I've I think I know the answer to what you would say, but one of the questions I had is, do we have any use for Aristotle or, or these theories at all when all the movies seem to be about comic book characters? Well, I'm going to give you the, the answer that I think you, you actually probably <laughs> answered it far better than, than I could, which is, yeah, Peter Parker. That's the yeah. answer, because yeah. that's the character that we can identify with. You know, Aristotle makes the point that, you know, when we're looking at a likeness, we derive pleasure from saying, you know, that is he. In other words, there's a joy in figuring something out. But the truth is, what he was really getting at is that the joy is at looking at something and saying, that is me. Yeah. And when we're sitting in an audience, you know, in a theater or, or virtually on our couch watching Netflix or something, the, the experience is communal. And so we're really saying, that is we. And that's part of the, the role of storytelling is to make us realize we're not alone with our experiences. We're not alone with our, our pain and our joy, but we're part of this, this larger community of, of human beings on this planet. And that's something that's important for us to grow and develop and evolve. Yeah, and it's good for us to do that, to have that experience and to, to exercise those powers of empathy. Exactly, exactly. And, and boy, that is something that, that movies uniquely do you know i yeah I, I i i hesitate sometimes because you know if i'm talking at a bookstore in a library or something and everybody's <laughs> huge fans of books and i'm a huge fan of books right but there's a difference when you're watching a movie than reading a book and i don't think there's any form or, or medium of storytelling that can surpass movies in terms of giving us the opportunity to really step in someone else's shoes to really wear someone else's skin and 
care about what they care about and fear what they fear and desire what they desire. And in a way, especially in, in, in the times that we're living right now, it's so important that we have that empathy, that we're able to recognize ourselves in each other. And, you know, one of the interesting things that Aristotle talks about is that the emotion that should ideally be generated in, uh, from a tragedy is mm-hmm. pity and fear. Mm. Pity and fear. And I think about those two emotions and how they relate to other non-tragic stories. And if you think about them, those are very two different responses because when you pity someone, you are standing outside of them and casting judgment about their situation. You're thinking they don't deserve their fate, but you are from a vantage point separate from them. When you feel fear, on the other hand, you are realizing that fate could befall you, that it's something that, that directly affects and impacts you in your life. So what Aristotle is getting at is, is in the best stories, if we're to solicit fear and, and pity, what we're doing to our audience is having them both observe and participate in the action. Yeah. And again, that's ideally what we as screenwriters need to provide for our audience. Yeah, and you could see how... When two different emotions like that, that could potentially be completely unrelated to each other, the way getting that calibration right in order to make a successful tragedy is you could see where scriptwriters would go wrong, right? And they would, they right. would, they would maybe have a tragedy and maybe you feel really sorry for them, but you're not yourself uh, engaging in the fear or you maybe don't feel sorry for them or, and what you end up with is feeling about like you feel when you see a stormtrooper go down, you know, rather than. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and it goes right back to, to your uh, distinction between Superman and Peter Parker. You know, one we're observing and, and one we're actively engaged and participating in because we understand what it is to be a nerd or we understand what it is to, to, to want things beyond our uh, you know, power or control or to, to feel overwhelming responsibility when we, we really just want to go out and have a good time. All those things that are part of the, the non-superpowered part of, of Spider-Man yeah. are things that we can all relate to. And so we, we can play that game of I'm watching him, I'm feeling for him, I hope he makes it through, and at the same time we're feeling I hope I make it through. And I think, you know, I think that's why they keep rebooting Spider-Man, because the best part of (laughs) Spider-Man is where he starts to get his powers. And you think, oh, man, imagine if I woke up one day and suddenly I could climb on the walls and I could, you know, like and I felt this sort of uh, strangeness of being able to shoot these webs. And you feel this uh, trying to harness that power that you're growing into. I mean, I guess people have compared it to going through puberty as well, but it's sort of. Right. To me, that's always the best part of the Spider-Man movie is the part where he is at home and suddenly realizes he can hear things a mile away and, you know, all of the <laughs> all of the right. We're, we're not in Kansas seen. anymore. Yeah, exactly. Uh, OK, so I heard another interesting thing that I thought would be interesting to bounce off you. And I just heard this the other day. It was an interview with Bill Hader. Do you know him? He's from the oh, I love uh, Bill Hader. Yeah, yeah. Saturday Night Live. So. He was talking about script writing and he was telling the story about how he's working on this show and he and the writers, they had this idea where there was going to be this this couple, they get together, they spend the night together 
and then it's sort of a meet cute kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. And their idea was that the woman would say, would mention that her laptop was broken. And so uh, they would spend the night together. And then the next day he would go out and buy her a new laptop. And, and Bill Hader said that all of the guys in the writer's room thought, this is perfect. What a romantic gesture. Like you can't get more romantic than that to go out and, and purchase a laptop. And then they told all the women and all the women were like, are you crazy? Like I would be so <laughs> freaked out if I slept with a guy and the next day he showed up with a brand new laptop that he wanted to give me, I would not take it. I would, you know, and so what, what was interesting was Bill Hader said their first thought was, oh, okay, we're going to have to revise this and, and come up with something that works. But then their second thought was, well, actually, this is a really interesting scenario because here's a guy who thinks that this is a really romantic gesture and it goes completely wrong and it's sort yeah. of a, it's sort of more complicated, you know. It gives a more more complex emotion than if he just goes out and like brings back breakfast or you know does something that fits what they were originally trying to get. And they thought this is going to feel more real. It's going to be closer to life. It's going to be more interesting. But it's also going to be uh, getting at some some complexity of emotions that we weren't going to get if we just had him come in with, you know, half a dozen roses and she falls all over herself because she's so pleased that she found this this romantic right. guy. It seems like, on the one hand, you know, Hollywood gets blamed a lot for uh, uh, simple endings or happy endings or, or simple, predictable stories, but it also seems like writers are out there really trying to to surprise us and to tell things in a new way and avoid cliches and I'm wondering your perspective as a someone who not only writes screenplays but revises them, what kinds of things are you seeing come in the door and what kind of work do they need? Usually when you're rewriting or polishing a screenplay, it comes down to one word, which is conflict. Mm. Conflict is the lifeblood of any drama, of any screenplay. And so usually what you're looking for is how can we make things more difficult for our protagonist. And yeah. it, it goes to the example you were just describing. I was I, just going to say, that was, said, <laughs> that's Bill Hader. Exactly. That's what he found. He found conflict where he wasn't looking for it. <laughs> exactly. So, so I had a, a professor who, who used to say, uh, when you're writing a screenplay, you are God, but you are an Old Testament God. Mm. And what he meant with, by that was that what your job as a screenwriter is to torture your protagonist. Ultimately, the, yeah. the structure of any story is, is based around the character's objective. They want something desperately, and, and it's got tremendous stakes. So there are huge consequences for the character to fail to win the, the woman's heart or to find the treasure or win the battle or solve the crime or whatever the, the objective might be. And the screenwriter's primary job is to place those obstacles in that protagonist's path to make it as difficult as possible. And what you say about, you know, Hollywood sometimes getting blamed for, you know, happy endings. I, I think about the, the movies and the stories that, that really are memorable, that I really care about, and that we as a, as a society think are worthwhile, either artistically or, or commercially. And the ones where the character get what they, gets what they want at the end are really few and, and, and far in between. Mm. Because the truth is, what makes the best ending? And this goes back to Aristotle as well, is that the hero ultimately doesn't get what he wants. He gets what he needs. 
Yeah. And that means that he has been missing something in his normal world at the beginning of the story. He's got some kind of a flaw or a missing piece that is going to require him to go on this journey. And so what's pulling us through the story is, you know, the Bill Hader character may want to, to win that, that woman's heart, but ultimately he's got to learn respect or he's got to learn selflessness or yeah. something that he's probably not even aware he's, he's deficient in. And usually what happens at the ending is the character gives up the thing that they wanted in order of, to, to achieve something more important. And those are really the best endings. Casablanca. Exactly. Oh, that's the hero. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the story <laughs> we're going to be talking about, you know, a couple hundred years from now. Yeah. Or the Godfather has got that in it as well. Exactly. Uh, Casablanca seems, now that I think about it, that seems like almost like a paradigmatic screenplay. Is that one uh, that's oh. taught often? Definitely, definitely. I mean, definitely up there. And, and, and you'd be surprised at how few students, uh, you know, have actually seen it. Maybe maybe it's not a surprise because it's old. It's black and white. It came out before Pulp Fiction. Yeah. That's usually the, the beginning mark for, for a lot of film students. Oh, um, but... right, right. <laughs> and they love the jumping around in time and kind of the, the high-low culture and the, the, the humor and the, this, the shocking violence. And the, and the crossing of genres, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and in a way, it's because they're sophisticated. You know, right. they, 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 yep. the language of film changes and evolves. You know, you look at uh, the early Westerns and compare it to something like Unforgiven. Um, you know, there, there's a real transformation. There's a real evolution. And, and Aristotle talks about that, too. He talks about the tragedies of his time are greatly evolved from, from those of, of you know, Aeschylus and, and mm. earlier mm -hmm. Greek um, classics. And in, in terms of things like the use of a chorus, the use of song, the use of spectacle. So we need to acknowledge, and, and, and kind of this is the, the foundation of my book, is that that evolution has continued. And so when you look at a movie like Black Panther or, you know, one of the Star Wars movies or Three Billboards or Get Out, you know, one of my favorite movies of the year, mm. you have to see it in that continuum of storytelling that goes all the way back to sitting around the campfire and telling the tale of the great saber-toothed tiger hunt. Yeah. Movies aren't anything new. They're just the newest expression of an exercise that we've been doing since we were on the planet. Right. So good. You can find our entire conversation in episode 135, Aristotle Goes to the Movies, with Brian Price. Next up, Hollywood actress and Pacific Northwest novelist Meg Tilly. After this. Tilly is here. She's one of the stars of my childhood. Is the word crush insulting? Is that unprofessional? I hope not. It was a pleasure to talk to Meg about her childhood, her rise as an actress, her love for fiction and stories, and her pivot to become a novelist. We pick up the story with a discussion of the people of Hollywood and what lies beneath the surface. Everybody, not everybody, 
but the majority live on a shoestring. Mm. It doesn't matter how much money people made. It's like a lot of people. Some people make so much that there's, you think there's no way they can go through it. But people you wouldn't even expect, people you wouldn't even expect, like, you know, in Hollywood, big stars, heads of studios, you know, because they, they, if they think, we, this is how it's going to be forever. You might have one or two films where you make a lot of money, but if those films don't do well, that's it. Like, that's it. You know, yeah. people, and also people see, like, huge sums of money that people make, but you have to think you've got the the business manager that takes, I can't remember because I don't have those people now, but the five or 10%, the lawyer that does that, the yeah. agent that takes 10%. If you have a, if you have a manager an acting manager, they take 15%. All of that shrinks it down and you've got taxes. So some of that's tax deductible, but the actual amount people bring home is much less. Now the um, athletes, they have in the last few years, they have, really changed the way they do things. And they now have uh, fiscal workshops for yes. athletes and things I, like that. Because yeah. right. you would read about people who would have huge careers. In, oh, a hundred million dollars. And it's, yeah, yes. gone. And on. two, three years later, gone. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. You know, they should do the same thing for uh, lottery winners. Although I guess it's not their responsibility. But you see it time and time again, people making all this money and spending it and it destroying their lives and being broke five years later. Right. You know, I remember being at a party and uh, people got a little tipsy. And these were like big, 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 huge, huge. Like everybody knew their name in Hollywood. It started confessions. Like somebody said, you know, I could on credit manage six months, oh. six months, and then I'd be homeless. Yeah. Meanwhile, they're building a theater. This was before people built theaters in their house. They're built, make, turning, transforming their basement into a theater and doing, and it's like, are you kidding me? It's such a volatile career. So, yeah. So, well, let's, yeah. let's talk a little bit about Hollywood because your book is set there. And yes. that was one of the questions I had for you is uh, Hollywood as a setting. I mean, from the outside, I could see it going in a few different directions. On the one hand, it's got this incredible glamour and just the whole glitz and gloss of it. On the other hand, it's it it can seem kind of ridiculous or, you know, like there's this disparity in wealth. You have the mm -hmm. the uh, the different Hollywoods of people who are just grinding it out and people who are the golden boys, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and on the rise and so on. So mm -hmm. what appealed to you about Hollywood as a setting for your book, The Runaway Heiress? I had I hadn't known it was going to be Hollywood when I first started it. I knew I was going to do uh, in the, my Fall of Silence series, the last book, Hidden Cove, there was a woman who appeared, not that much. She was a minor player in that story. She worked at an art gallery, but my readers kept saying, we need Mary's story. What happened to Mary? We need Mary's story. But Mary Browning, that was a fake name for her because she was on the run from her abusive husband. And I didn't know where, I, so I thought it's impossible. How do you write a book where the woman where your readers know her as one name, so that's where your reference point is, where she's on the run and she's she's taken on a new name because she had to leave the last place because she's on the run. And you have her real name. Like, how can you have somebody who has, is, it's going to be just too confusing for the readers. How are mm. they going to, I thought I couldn't do it, but I thought I got so many readers saying, oh, please, please, we need Mary's story. You can't just leave us hanging like that. That I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go, but I don't really don't think it's going to work. And I had a couple <laughs> other places where she ended up. Like, actually, the first place where I got around 40 pages in, the guy was uh, 
he owned a, he was working the head of a, a automobile parts company. <laughs> yeah. And, and she applied for a job as a, and they, but it just wasn't working. And so I like, okay, well, and, and so that, that guy didn't work for her. It's sort of like a, a dating, you know, buffet or whatever. It's like, who's going to work. And then all of a sudden Mick started talking to me. Like I just wrote a scene with, with him yeah. and it turned out it's way different than it was, but I was like, what if, and I was, I thought of a certain, uh, actor that I knew what if oh my gosh what if she showed up and instead of being a sex she's like you stop she has to get you know so she's gonna she has to be a personal assistant and I thought of this uh. person I was like oh my gosh and so I wrote a scene with him and it was it was it's very different than than what it is now but there still is that but the minute I found Mick I just was like oh and I thought you can't you can't have somebody like this be like in this genre of books, he can't be the, you know, but I, I couldn't help yeah. it. He just made me laugh. Yeah. And then, and, and then he's, I dug he's a director and he right. changed. He's a director. He's yeah. not an actor. Yeah. Of course you aren't going to write people, you know, but yeah. I use somebody as taking off place. He's a director, but, yeah. and then I use uh, things that I knew as the taking off place, but then Mick became somebody else. It was why I had connected with this uh, certain person, even though I wasn't at that point in my life saying, yeah, I, I come from a challenging childhood too. So all of a sudden, Mick, in a way, is part B. He's like this huge director, the golden boy of Hollywood. But there's that part in him that was always, you know, nose pressed against the glass looking in. And he, mm. he, he grew up in a brothel and trying, being at school and seeing, you know, like where he's got the school lunches and somebody get opens his lunch and makes fun of it. But, you know, that was me, you know, I <laughs> said peanut yeah. butter sandwiches too. You know, this kind of feeling of always being this scrappy kid with rat's nest hair and yeah. thick calluses and shoeless right. in the summer. And yet there I was in Hollywood and everybody thought I was fancy and yeah. the dichotomy of that. And also the feeling that everybody has in Hollywood or the majority of you're only as good as your last film. And when are they going to discover there's this kind of feeling of no matter how successful you got, everybody, everybody was always, this is the one that's going to make it come crashing down. Or this is when they're going to discover it's the emperor has no clothes. Mm. And maybe the emperor has clothes. But they all feel like they have no clothes because everybody or a lot of people, the reason you're drawn to Hollywood is because you want to recreate a new reality, not just for yourself, but what draws somebody to need to, like me, to be more comfortable in somebody else's skin than my own for many yeah. years, Yeah. to discover who I was in pretending to be someone else, in slipping on these characters. And so that's what I thought was an interesting backdrop. And then you have, well, she was Mary Browning, and then she's going, she's, you know, but her real name's Sarah Rainsford. You have her who came from everything that me as a kid, you know, she's an heiress, like huge, huge heiress. But everything that I was like, oh, my nose pressed to the glass would see somebody like her, perhaps in a magazine or in a book and, and be like, oh, she might, or a newspaper, she must have the most magical, lucky life. And yet she's on the run because her life didn't give her the street smarts to know to avoid the guy who tricked her into getting married. So 
you you think always, and I think that's maybe a common theme in a lot of my books, is you look at other people and you measure yourself against their yardstick. And there's the me, the writer who's saying, dig a little deeper, look a little closer. Everything is not not what it seems. And yeah. so you have these two people who are, who, uh, you know, and, and, and then, and, but then luckily they, you know, there's twist, lots of twists and turns because money can make people view people differently too. So that's a, a cage of a different sort, you know, yeah. it's a gilded cage. And so money and Hollywood, like do it's the same question I think that comes up in the book. What do people like me for? You know, do they like Nick because he's this big director and can make or break careers and, you know, earn lots of money for the studios, you know, yeah. her, is she just dollar signs on her for tattooed on her forehead that has actually taken away everything that she loves? Uh. Well, it's clearly a world that you know so well. It's it's uh, the the novelist Ian McEwan said, you know, he needs to know enough that he has room to splash around when he's writing a novel. Yes. And it it seems like once you combine the characters with the Hollywood setting, it gave you that freedom of, oh, I know how this works. I know how I can yeah. make these scenes work, and I know who I can put in them. Hmm. Meg Tilly. She agreed with me on that, and she went on to explain more about her writing process. Our intern thought that would be a good place to stop, kind of giving me the last word, but there you go. Our full conversation is at episode 338, Finding Yourself in Hollywood with Meg Tilly. And finally, no break this time, we go straight into our next clip. Our old friend Mike Palindrome stopped by to talk some Alfred Hitchcock. There aren't many brands like directed by Alfred Hitchcock, quote unquote, when it comes to the movies. They are commercially successful and artistic and full of glitz and glamour and just enough suspense to keep things interesting. In this episode, Mike and I chose our favorite 10 Hitchcock films. We begin with Mike's number one pick. So, The Greatest Hitchcock Films, what is your number one? I'm going with Rare Window. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. it's um, it's funny because I was saying how literature, how film is not literature. Yeah. Um, four out of my top five picks are Hitchcock films based on stories. Yeah, that seemed to so. be his the way he was... When he started really cranking them out, he seemed to take slim novels or short stories and acquire them and and uh, adapt them and make them his own. But starting with kind of a source material, usually some schlock book or some some cheap uh, dime store novel. Yeah, so Rear Window is based on Cornell Wood Woolrich's. 1942 short story. So that's 13 years before the movie. Mm. It had to be murder. I've never heard of Cornell with Will Rich. And um, right. I, I just, I just think it's a perfect film. I think yeah. you, you have um, Grace Kelly. Yep. Um, the James, Jimmy Stewart character could have been played by someone else possibly, but I think Grace Kelly could only this character could have been placed, played by Grace Kelly. And, yep. you know, the whole class conflict, the uptown girl, the fashion society girl and this gritty downtown guy. Yep. I think um, he added that. Uh, I think, I oh, think that, that was an element that he added. Yeah. Uh, and he accentuated it because once he knew Grace Kelly was going to be the, uh, the leading lady, because he knew that that would be, that she would be perfect for that. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, we may talk about plot twists and plot revelations, so we should warn our listeners. But um, I think Rear Window, it, you know, just what you were talking about, the audience knowing what the characters don't. There's a great scene where, you, you know, without giving too, way too much, Grace Kelly is in the the apartment of the suspected killer and the audience and Jimmy mm. Stewart are looking yeah. through binoculars from an opposite building and they can both see that the suspect is coming in through the apartment and Grace Kelly is not aware of it. Right. Yeah. So let's, we should probably do this for each of these. I think most of our listeners will be familiar, but rear window 1954, it is about a photographer who has broken his leg. He's sort of an action photographer. He's broken his leg. He's stuck in his apartment. He has nothing to do all day, but look out his window onto the apartment building that's facing him. And then he kind of inhabits the lives of those people. There's a dancer called Miss Torso, and there's a a Lonely Hearts woman, and there's a newly married couple. And you kind of see a little bit of little vignettes of each of these people. Uh, And then he sees in one apartment what appears to be a mysterious disappearance of a man's wife, and he starts to put together things he has seen before, and he suspects them him of murder, but he is disbelieved by his 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 girlfriend, and his he has a friend who's a police uh, detective who also disbelieves. They think he's sort of imagining things. So that's the plot of the movie. You know, everybody kind of knows that the the guy that he suspects of murder looks familiar to people. He's Raymond Burr, who played Perry Mason. But did you know, do you remember the songwriter in the in one of the apartments? Oh, the pianist? Yeah. Do you know who that is? No. It is Ross Bagdasarian, who is the creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of uh, trivia there. I agree with you that Grace Kelly really kind of makes the movie. Hitchcock loved working with Jimmy Stewart. At least when he was uh-huh. younger, at least in this film, uh, he thought he was he liked that he had this the the pure American guy, the all American you know look that he had and, and demeanor that he had. He he also mm-hmm. thought he was workmanlike, and apparently the two of them communicated through wordless glances. They could just look <laughs> at each other and and decide if the scene needed to be redone or not. And uh, the most direction Hitchcock would give is he would sometimes say the scene was tired meaning the timing was off. They didn't, it didn't quite snap the way he wanted the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thelma Ritter, who is also good in this, she's the, the housekeeper nurse, I guess, who's taking care of Jimmy Stewart while he's got this broken leg. She said about Hitchcock, if you did something he liked, he said nothing. If you did something he didn't, if you did something he didn't like, he looked like he wanted to throw up. so i guess that's the direction i saw this thing when i was in chicago i went through this hitchcock phase and back then it was hard to find a lot of things on uh, video we didn't have youtube or anything like that so i went to the museum of broadcasting in chicago and i Uh checked out all these different i used to just go there and hang out sometimes and i would check out all these things that i had heard about like the the very first episode of David Letterman and that kind of thing. And there was an interview with Hitchcock that I had read about and wanted to watch. So I, I can't remember uh, who the interviewer was. It was Mike Douglas or somebody. And they were saying to him, they were quoting him and they said, you've been quoted as saying that 
actors were like cattle. And Hitchcock nodded, and you know that was sort of his view of them. He did he did so many storyboards, and he had everything so scripted out that by the time the actors came in, Hitchcock just wanted them to do what he was already expecting them to do. You know, he wasn't looking for a lot of genius to be added or accidental lines or improv lines or anything. He wanted them to just hit their marks, deliver the lines, give the good performance, and stay out of his way. And and so they were like cattle that he was bossing around. And the interviewer said, now you've worked with Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman and Grace Kelly. How can you say that that actors are like cattle when you've worked with you know, Hollywood's luminaries like that. And Hitchcock said, well, some of them are nice cattle. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. I had Rear Window as number two, but I wrote down uh, this might be my favorite. I remember seeing it in the theater. My parents took me. There was a, a little renaissance or a little revival of Hitchcock films in 1984 where there were five lost Hitchcock classics where uh-huh. they they hadn't been shown in theaters for years because of some kind of uh, dispute over the the music or something, and they uh, they released them in 1984, and so I was a, a young teenager, I guess, and my parents uh, took me to see a, a few of them, and this was this was one of the ones I saw, and it was uh, I loved it. It was it, it struck me right away. Yeah, I mean it's it it is so tightly plotted it's almost g-rated in a way mm-hmm. it's um yep yeah i just watched it with my kids and there was no yeah. uh there, there's some innuendo but it, it really is there's nothing that you couldn't uh show even a a toddler you know it was everything is everything is pretty tame and mild and when it when it, we finished they were both astounded like the movie still held up even for their generation which is they're very impatient and they need to be entertained and everything, but they were riveted by the movie. And when it was over, my older son just mm-hmm. cried out and he said, that was such a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's got a kind of timelessness to it. Yeah. And it, at the time it was the biggest set that was ever constructed. I mean, a, a big part of this is how well the set works for what the, for telling the story, but they actually built a, a whole six story, um, facade and and all of the apartments inside had running water i think uh i think the bathrooms worked and everything like they really they really built the thing (laughs) so if it was your number two what was your number one okay well for number one i took vertigo oh okay yeah that makes sense yeah which i took it first even though i did think rear window is probably my favorite one to watch but i think vertigo is the richest and and maybe Hitchcock's best. It's such a masterpiece. It's the story. This was from 1958. The story is Jimmy Stewart. It's Jimmy Stewart again. He was a retired police detective hired by a man to follow the man's wife. And when she jumps off of a bell tower, uh, Jimmy Stewart kind of has this crisis and he decides to remake a woman in her image. And it's such a good movie. It's set in San Francisco. It's got beautiful colors. And it's really psychologically deep and what i think gave why i gave this kind of the number one the first thing Mm -hmm. is it's hitchcock at the height of his powers he's every shot is so well composed and every scene and every sequence there's you could spend a whole day watching on youtube 
uh, breakdowns of these shots and and people who are pointing out things that Hitchcock did. And I don't mean just little Easter eggs like, oh, look, here's a here's a photo in this in this scene or that scene or something. And here's a here's a neat little, uh, you know, inclusion of some knickknack or something like that. I mean, where they're talking about things like the way he's moving the camera and the way he's placing the actors and the way he's arranged the furniture so that you can tell when an actor is feeling insecure or when an actor is, when one character is uh, dominating another one, the way that the scene is shot will reflect that. And, And it also has the famous camera maneuver, which has now become pretty commonplace, but it was used for the first time in this movie. The technology had developed, and it's the sometimes it's called the Zolly, where you push the camera in and you zoom out the lens at the same time, or you can do it vice versa. And it changes the background and it disorients the viewer almost huh. subconsciously because you're you're focused on the same thing, but the background is changing because you're the angle of the lens is changing. And uh according to Hitchcock, it was inspired by an episode where he fainted at a party. <laughs> and I guess what he means is he he was either falling forwards and looking at something or falling backwards and looking at something. And his eyes were doing the zooming, but he realized, you know, if if he could do that with a camera, uh, the effect that it would have would be similar to that fainting feeling. And it's also, it's often credited to a cameraman on Vertigo for inventing it. But I, I heard that Hitchcock had the idea for it like 10 years before, but they just didn't have the technology that would enable it to happen. But you see it now all the time. It's in Jaws on the beach. You see it in Goodfellas, that scene where you know De Niro's going to kill the guy. And there's a lot of uh, examples of it as, a, as a, a, a technique, but it's sometimes it's called the Vertigo shot. Wow, I didn't know that. So the other big thing about this movie, which I think really digs into Hitchcock and, and who he who he was and sort of him as an artist, he had these Hitchcock blondes. We've already seen two of them with Grace Kelly, who was, I think, kind of the, the ultimate Hitchcock blonde. Uh, mm-hmm. This one has Kim Novak, who's another one of these famous blondes. He didn't he that was his preferred type. He he didn't mm-hmm. want the. You know, the other type at the time would be a Sophia Loren or sort of a, a a lusty Spanish woman. And and Hitchcock said, you know, for him, the what he found most erotic was the icy, buttoned up, you know, uh, blonde hair pulled back tight and mm-hmm. perfectly made up. It has this exterior and you have to imagine all of the sexuality underneath. You have to... Imagine that under this frozen sea surface, there's this churning sea of sexuality, that that to him was more sexy than cleavage or a, a dress that shows a lot of leg or something like that. And and what's interesting about this I mean, is... What a theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what's, what's interesting about that... Well, he said that. I think that was in his interview with Truffaut, that that was his... His view of that was why he had these blondes in there. But what's so interesting about Vertigo is Jimmy Stewart is really getting carried away. Uh, and I mean, the character is really getting carried away, making this woman look the way he wants. And he's mm-hmm. saying, you know, no, your hair, it has to be like this. Can't you change it? Can't you, you know, and here's, here's the clothes I want you to wear. Can't you change it? 
And a lot of people have pointed out that this was very similar to what Hitchcock was doing with these actresses, that he was remaking them and, and sort of forcing them to look the way he wanted, to appear the way he wanted, to be what he was hoping them to be. And when you watch the movie with that in mind, that Hitchcock was digging into the downside or the, the creepiness of the way that he was inflicting his um, his preferences and, and his control that he was asserting over these actresses, it gives it a, a real uh, uh, autobiographical element that isn't that often isn't really there in Hitchcock where he's when he's doing these spy movies and stuff where you know that he's doing more entertainment. Wow. He seems like he, he was working on some issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it took sort of an ugly turn. I'll, I'll wait. I'll either tell the story at the end or I'll wait until you select the movie to, to talk about the ugly turn. But there, there was an even uglier side, but it, it happened after uh, Vertigo. Okay, there we go. Thank you for joining me on this Best Of episode. You can hear more of that Alfred Hitchcock conversation, including our picks 3 through 10, as well as some introductory material at episode 192, Alfred Hitchcock with Mike Palindrome. My thanks to Brian Price, Meg Tilly, and Mike P. You were such great guests. I am so glad... You are here. Please do check out their works. We'll be back with some Wallace Stegner next week and a surprise Czech novelist and playwright after that with Tom Stoppard and Edward Gibbon around the corner. Maybe a little June Jordan and some Cinderella stories coming up soon as well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>